0: Welcome to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. This week's episode is a bit different. Dr. Yoni Rosenblad joins a Sports Docs Podcast as a guest. The podcast is hosted by friends and former co-residents from the Harvard Combined Orthopedic Residency Program, who went on to esteem sports medicine fellowships at the Stedman Clinic and the Rothman Institute, respectively. In each episode, Dr. Catherine Logan and Dr. Ashley Bassett tackle a specific injury, from ACL tears to shoulder instability, and review the top research from various high-impact journals. This week, Dr. Yoni Rosenblad joins them for part one to discuss rehabilitation after shoulder stabilization surgery. Let's dive right in.
1: Welcome to the show, Yoni. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and share your expertise with our listeners.
0: Excited to be here. Awesome. Yeah,
1: we're excited to have you. Absolutely, so before we dive into all your tips and tricks for your patients that you see at, at TrueSport PT, we wanted to talk to you about the utility, if any, of home-based PT for shoulder instability rehab. So in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, I'm sure you've seen this, Catherine, you've probably seen this, there's been a surge of home-based PT programs and phone apps that promise to allow patients to recover from their orthopedic surgery in the comfort of their home. I'm personally really skeptical about this, especially for shoulder surgery, but I wanted to get your thoughts. So. Our first paper looked at this. They compared a hospital-based PT program to a purely home-based PT program. And while they didn't measure range of motion at any time point, which I think is a big flaw, um, they did report that clinical outcomes were equivalent at all time points. So what are your thoughts on this? Would you ever recommend a pure home-based program after shoulder stabilization surgery for anyone?
0: So this is near and dear to my heart because uh, I was a part of a startup um, which really pioneered this home exercise specifically for shoulders. Um, and offerings on the, on the market today, um, we, we had a, an exit from that um, startup. So offerings that I know of currently today... Are subpar and they terrify me personally <laughs> um, to, yeah. to trust a patient to a home exercise program. Here's why, so, especially in my world. I live in the sports world, and so I'm dealing with a lot of overhead athletes, um, active individuals. And, and if I had a nickel for every time a patient came in to see me and said, you know, I started this other PT and now we're coming to true sports, multiple sports, sports. <laughs> um, and, and I said, Oh, l- let me see what you're doing. I don't know why it didn't work out wherever you were. But let me see what you're doing. And they're doing the right exercises. They're, they're getting all the right answers to the test. But their form looks like crap. They don't mm-hmm. know what their shoulder blades are doing. They don't know where they should feel it. No one's cueing them knowing no one's changing it. And with a few little tweaks, all of a sudden the home exercise program is far more effective. I think patients need that. Uh, Even the elite population needs that. They don't know what their staffs are doing, especially post-op. So Mm -hmm. it's great that that study supported favorable outcomes, it's bananas that they're not looking at range of motion. Yeah. Um, there are really good technical ways to measure that virtually. Yeah. So that should be a piece and was a piece of the program that I created. Um, but nevertheless, no, I don't love it. One, it's going to put me out of business. But two, <laughs> I, there's no way in hell the patients know what's actually transpiring. And if you're dealing with an active population, the shoulder doesn't just need to be okay.
2: Yeah.
0: It mm-hmm. needs to be awesome. And I think you need a skilled set of eyes for that. I'm biased, but that's the way I feel about it.
2: Yeah. No, I think, you know, I'd be shocked if we're not all on the same page. So uh, full disclosure, I use um, an app occasionally, not with all my post-ops, but it just like is a range of motion check. I only use it with knees and it basically is like a home monitoring to like make sure they're staying on track. It's not like it's a supplement or like I should say an adjunct where it lets me know it. Like I get like a trigger sort of email if it says they're really behind (laughs) or it can also say like. You know, I'm having a lot of pain. It'll like send an email to the office if they're rating their daily pain at like seven, you know, and I don't expect it to be there. But literally, all it's really feeding back to me is like they have, you know, full extension in their knee or they get to like 95 or whatever. And if someone is, you know, far, farther out from like an ACL surgery and I'm like, they should be way ahead of that, you know, then I can just call the person and say, have you been going to your PT? You know, that kind of stuff. But it's not like a replacement. So I think, you know, there's some, you know, you can argue there's some needs for like, say, rural populations or things mm-hmm. like that. I certainly think, I, first of all, I can't believe they didn't do range of motion. I just don't understand mm-hmm. that. But, but yeah, I think we're all on the same page there.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense. One more little tidbit: I'm a little bit obsessive with home exercise prescription and mm-hmm. programming. We have. A proprietary app that True Sports uses. Oh, nice. And this is just a build out of what I used to do when I first started my practice. I would just video my patients and text them a video of them yeah. doing the exercise and me narrating and coaching behind it and send it to them and all i did was make that um an indwelling app so every single patient that walks into true sports downloads the app they have access to their home log which is them doing the actual exercise in their evaluation or in their reevaluation or whenever they're getting it and then i program reps sets they'll shoot me a text inside the app say hey this is easy this is hard and i can manipulate it inside so long gone are the days of the printout
2: Yeah, the dinner. Um,
0: And I think it's so, and I think it's so really, really, um, I would say, lazy of the therapist if they're not providing real specific home exercises to that patient. And every single, especially the shoulder, is different. And so you got to coach it a little bit differently. And so just using the app, even if you're going to either contact us and you can white label our app, or Mm -hmm. just use your freaking iPhone and put some effort in. To give your your patient a very specific home exercise regimen. Okay,
2: so I feel like right before we started recording, you were like shocked that I do the editing for this. So, <laughs> but like, you can make an app.
0: <laughs> you can make it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I can pay someone to make an okay. app. <laughs> yeah.
2: I was like, how are you making this? Like, <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, I'll show you that it afterwards. It's great.
1: Okay. <laughs> uh, awesome. So- so I- Go on. No, 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 go on. I was gonna say,
2: so that was, um, I think, you know, we see like, maybe there's a little utility for, you know, maybe making some measurements or doing some like remote monitoring, but like, you know, obviously like, you know, there's some things that we're seeing are like big red flags as far as like, they really need to be in a formal facility-based program. Um, I don't know if Ashley, you have anything else to like, you know, add on that study or,
1: Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I echo everything you guys said. I think that the fact that they didn't measure range of motion is a big deal. And also for me, I mean, I have very specific range of motion um, parameters after an arthroscopic bank guard. Like how I progress, it's very specific degrees week by week. And so I don't necessarily trust the patients to know what those degrees are. Like even if they are putting in the work and doing everything diligently, I don't know that I can protect them from themselves not doing something too much that maybe they shouldn't be doing, stretching external rotation too much after I've done a repair. So I think. I just feel more comfortable having a licensed professional that's dedicated their lives to learning how to do this with their hands on my patients rather than my patients trying to figure it out, even with a great app. Like Yoni, I'm sure your app is great, but I think that okay. having someone ev- evaluate and be hands-on is, is really important. So I think we're all saying the same thing here.
0: It is important. I'll tell you where I do see some utility. And what I'll do is I'll have patients come in and see me um, pre-op. Yeah. And I will I will teach them the exercise while while they have a decently functional shoulder, but to show them very simple things that will transpire in the sling. Now we're going to get into this, I think, a little bit later as to how quickly I see these patients post op. I would love Mm -hmm. to see them as early as possible. And you guys, being the medical community, is so freaked out that I'm going to mess up your repair. (laughs) But I'm telling you, we're not. We're not going to mess up the repair if we have half a brain. But Mm -hmm. I will record those exercises that I want them doing for the first four weeks, if Dr. Murphy is crazy and he won't let me see them before the first four weeks, then at least I have taught them those exercises prior. They have film of them doing it and my nasal voice in the background. There is some utility there I could see with them using the app and and making that the home exercise program. But once you need to start progressing range of motion or handle the millions of questions that come up, I I love seeing them in office, obviously.
2: Yeah. So I actually, what I always tell people say I operate Tuesdays and Thursdays. If you have surgery on Thursday, I want you in PT on Monday. If you have a mm-hmm. surgery on Tuesday, I want you there either Thursday or Friday. You know what I mean? So it's like, I want them there quickly, you know, and obviously like I'm, you know, telling them where I'd like them to go to PT. So it's all people I trust and stuff. But I think there's a ton of value in just like even them just like getting some anxiety down and realizing, Oh, it is okay. It's not so scary when I take off my sling and I, you know, do all these kind of things. Otherwise they're sitting at home and they're all freaked out. And like, I think mm-hmm. there's, you know, with, obviously I trust the people I send them to to make sure that they're doing a good job. But then I also think it just helps reduce a lot of their own anxiety. Is I
0: that completely because agree. you have a background in physical mm-hmm. therapy oh. maybe? do you trust us or not? Possibly. Okay. I'm just
2: like anything, right? Like there's good doctors, bad doctors. Like it's not like I'm like, "Oh, go, I don't know, here's a, a sheet, go pick a physical therapist." Like yeah. all my patients will tell you that when we're pick when we're talking about surgery, I'm like, "Where do you live?" And they'll tell me and I'll like like really pinpoint like, "Okay, what insurance do you have?" Okay. Okay, I want you to go and see this place and I want you seeing one of these three therapists. So it's definitely mm-hmm. very like dialed. Um but that you know, just like you wouldn't say, I don't know, go to any surgeon you want. You know, you would sort of say, I know this surgeon has great outcomes or I see their patients and they do well, or, you know, maybe skip that office. You know, I think it's just like anything else.
0: Okay. Let me ask you this. And this, this question goes to both of you. I know you're supposed to be asking the questions and I'm supposed to be Mm -hmm. answering them, but is there, is there any pressure from, um, Dr. Bassett? I think you're in private practice, Dr. Logan Mm -hmm. private.
2: It's private. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So is there any pressure to keep them in house with your, the PT that you guys offer? No, no qualms so, about it.
1: So for me, I'll just say we, 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 don't, we don't have our own PT. We, just, we, send to, we refer to PTs, but there are certain PTs that we're linked with. Like if we do community outreach, we tend to do a community outreach with a certain PT group that we just have a great relationship with. But there are certain areas where there's a stronger PT at a different company in that area. And that my other PT knows I'm I'm going to send to them. I'm not sending to a company. I'm sending to the physical therapist that is working with that patient. That PT is excellent and has yielded excellent outcomes with my surgical patients. That's where they're going. I have no, I don't say no loyalty. That sounds terrible, but my loyalty is to the patient. So it's wherever they're going to have the best outcome personally.
2: Yeah. I think, you know, there's is obviously, like in my building or PTs, are, you know, at the hospital, my clinic um, is in a hospital. So um, but, you know, I just think there's different strengths. And so one, like it has to be convenient for the patients. That's why I always talk about, like, where do you live? You know, I want it to be somewhere that's in network for them. And, you know, but I think there's also a little bit of matchmaking. So just because you know, so-and-so is good with knees. Maybe like, I just sort of intuitively know, like they're better with like an older population or better, like, or I know this patient is super anxious. They need somebody who like knows how to work with that and get them on track. Um, You know, so it's that extra step, but I think it's a little bit of that matchmaking. And anytime I've sort of had a contract, like, with, you know, working with a hospital, like they will always bring that up. Oh, we have PT on site. I just want to let you know, and you can do this and you can do that. And I, you know, very quickly say like, um, that's a really important decision and that's always going to be my decision. You know, I maybe they are great that. and maybe I will, but you know, but maybe just, they're
0: not. I love that. I hope all the docs that are listening to this heard that and we're taking notes. <laughs> on that. We We love that. That's great to hear.
1: And honestly, I'm just so, Catherine, I think you made a really great point. I think you were getting to it too about when people start PT after. So recently I've become more aggressive in terms of getting people in. So I don't, we've talked about ACL management. So I usually see them post-up day three, I do a dressing change, I drain them and if they need to be, and then I get them into PT that day. So I thought I was like, great, get them in post-up day three. I have a surgeon in my group who does post-up day one before he sees them get them in and like. Even like the mental side, like they just, they, they come into clinic, they like crutch super quick, hop up on the table. They're just like, they're, they are, they're not afraid. They're not guarded. It doesn't take them like 30 minutes to get out of the car. They just are just functioning better. They're more comfortable in their own body. I think because someone's like helped them even just like getting on and off a table and crutching. And so I feel like with everything, I'm becoming more aggressive with early PT. And I feel like Bank Art's probably about to follow that. I don't send them immediately after a Bank Art, but I feel like I'm heading in that direction because of what I'm seeing in other areas. So I think it's really
0: yeah, important. and and I would I would encourage you, if in all of your guys' spare time, to take a look at some of the PT literature, and it's really mm-hmm. strong in supporting early PT for all types of shoulder interventions whether it be soft tissue or whether it be a bony block where not only are we not ruining things as pts but that patient like you said their pain levels come way down as soon as they Mm -hmm. start pt it's that four weeks that is absolute hell when they're living in that sling they don't know what to do no one's answering questions and and no one's moving the shoulder um and and don't forget like all the little things we do like muscle recruitment and scat recruitment that's not touching your repair it's only helping the patient um Mm -hmm. so i love to hear that you're getting a little bit more yeah,
1: yes. absolutely. Well, hey, also, I yeah. Go ahead. Oh no, I was going to segue into our next one. So if you have more to add on this, oh, yeah. go we'll do it. <laughs> no, just repeating stuff. So um, no, no, it's. We'll it's we'll <Yes>. Awesome. So I feel like that really lends kind of really well into our next thing we want to talk about, which is the other things you can do besides moving the shoulder, right? So it's not just the operative shoulder, it can also be the non-operative shoulder. So um, part of this podcast we like to do is we really like to highlight the newest literature. And part of doing that is doing a literature search and anticipation of our episode. And we came across this, epi- this episode, this paper in JSES from last month that talked about cross-education. So before we dive into the results of that, can you tell our listeners what cross-education is?
0: Yeah. I'll keep it really simple. It's working out the contralateral limb. So mm. you have, you have surgery on your right shoulder. You have surgery on your right shoulder. Um, it's doing exercises with the left and seeing how, how well that can affect the right. Yeah.
2: Awesome. Yeah. And I Are think
1: we're- not,
2: my guess <laughs> is like, if the surgeons that are listening are like, what's that word? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, but it makes a lot of sense. Cause there's like also that data about BFR that you get those cross benefits. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're doing BFR on the right and somehow it's helping the left. And, you know, so it makes a lot of sense, just like neural network wise, that these things are occurring on both sides. And I would also just think like mentally, like, because. I never really talked to my patients specifically about like cross education, you know, do this on the other side and this is going to have a benefit on your surgical side. But I always talk about like in the pre-op sort of time like um I want you going to go into the gym as soon as you feel comfortable like just because you had knee surgery doesn't mean you can't like sit and do like rows or you know like have somebody bring weights to you and do like upper body or core or something like that just mentally you're just going to feel a lot better but you know i would imagine that there's like just some mental benefit to that too just feeling like you're moving but i don't know like what you guys think about that
0: i mean i think there's there's a huge amount of mental benefit um, just getting people back into the routines. When we talk about BFR and putting that on contralateral yeah. limb, and we'll get into this with our BFR conversation, um, th- that's really most likely a systemic response yeah. and a hormonal mm-hmm. response where exactly. you are getting significant amounts of release of human growth hormone by working with a tourniquet on your limb. Now, th- that's going to help the contralateral side. But I would also say there is no harm in putting it on the affected side when we get into BFR. I would also say when we talk about cross-education, um, that I really stipulate for homework. Like a patient comes into me and spends 45 minutes with me. I want to spend as much time as possible on the affected limb. So I'm not going to have them do those things in office. And when I do work bilaterally, especially lower extremity, but also upper extremity, they are going to live on their unaffected limb, right? So if I'm asking them to do a row, if it's if it's not individually harnessed, they're going to use the strong limb no matter how hard they try not to. So I'm going to shy away from that. I'm going to live unilaterally as much as possible, even doubling down with electric stim to enhance muscle recruitment and things like that very early and really emphasize, hey, there's so much you can do with the affected limb. That's where I want to spend my time. In terms of, Across education, we know it works. Ner- it's very neurally driven, right? So mm-hmm. you're going to increase your neural drive and you're just going to have more neurons that are activated. And so your brain's going to be able to control the, the affected limb a little bit better. In terms of hypertrophy and strength, it is about 50% effective as loading the affected limb. So as soon as I'm able to put a load in that affected limb, you got to live there. We're not going to make our money and you're not going to make as, as many gains as possible by living just with this cross-education. You got to be quick to get out of it. By the way, I would say you got to be quick. You got to be... That was a good sound effect. You got to be quick to get out of, of BFR also. So as soon as you can load heavily, you're going to get far more um, activation. You're going to get tissue response by creating load. So you just want to be careful that all of your All of your sessions are not limited by that tourniquet cutting off blood flow. Mm -hmm. Wait,
1: can you expand a little bit on that? Because here I'm thinking, I'm not PT trained, that always operating under lower loads with less strain through the tissue. Let's say ACL. I know we're talking about shoulder, but like less strain through a ligament that we're trying to get to ligamentize and heal in would always be a good thing if you're working the muscles under less stress. But you're saying that no, at some point you reach a point you want to actually stress them with a higher load.
0: Yeah, there's no question. I mean, that's where we see benefit. That's where we see an increase in robustness of tissue to be able to handle those loads. And you're cheating the patient from making those gains by living in that low rep, or sorry, high rep, low weight Mm -hmm. environment, which is necessary in the blood flow restricted environment. So -hmm. you want to make sure as soon as that tissue can tolerate load, you are progressively loading it. And true for, for the ACL as well. I mean, there's so little load that transpires through the actual tendon, which you're asking to become a ligament, uh, unless you're cutting, that mm-hmm. you're real, we're really talking about muscle tissue and tendon tissue, and you want as much force as the patient can tolerate um, productively because that's going to lead to gains down the road.
1: Yeah, makes sense. Can I ask one more question about cross-education before we move on further to talk about BFR? So um, if I'm telling a patient, here are things you can do at home, because you mentioned it was primarily home-based, what kind of exercises specifically are you having them work on? Is it mostly cuff? Um, Is it mostly periscapular? Like what's kind of a program that you give to them?
0: Because the effect of cross-education is so neurally driven, it's going to be more of my isometric holds and prolonged holds. So I would apply that to everything you just mentioned. Cuff, scap live in the ISO world that you're going to see better carryover. It's actually amazing. And you can prove it to your patient by saying, okay, let me see you do your right side. Let's say that's the affected limb. Um, Try an isometric ER. Where do you feel it? Okay. Now let's do a couple reps on the left. Where do you feel on the left? Oh, you feel it in your scap. Great. Let's go back to the right. All of a sudden they feel it in their scap. It it produces buy-in, but it's, it's purely neurally driven.
1: Okay. Great. Thank you.
2: Um, well, let's dive a little bit more into the BFR since we've already kind of touched it. And I think mm-hmm. it's one of our favorite sort of side topics. Um, so we, uh, also for our listeners, we did do a two part episode with Eddie Chang. Do you know Eddie Chang? Cause he's like in your mid Atlantic.
0: No, but I got to get him on the podcast. Where is he? He's
2: at Inova.
0: He's <laughs> at Inova. I love Inova. Yeah. I love Dr. West. There's no one yeah. better. Okay. Yeah. Right, right.
2: She, or I'm sorry. He is like Dr. West's like, Menti when you say,
0: wait, I thought that was me. Oh, all right.
2: right, I guess it's not. That was tough. You're number one. He's number two. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) But, um, so he is doing a lot of research, um, in BFR. So we had him on like October, 2021. Um, and so we'll post all that stuff too. And we'll send you the episode, but he's fantastic. And even since we've had him on, he's like started further studies, Um, and he's specifically because of their relationship with the nationals, um, he's done a lot in upper extremity. Um, so let's dive a little bit deeper. Yoni, tell us a little bit of more about like what you're doing for shoulder rehab with BFR.
0: Yeah. I want to get, I want to get that tourniquet on them as soon as possible. It's been pretty amazing to watch, um, Doctors who are so involved in literature and all of a sudden I'm getting scripts that that are requesting BFR and things like that, which is great to see that it's permeating your world. Um, I I get the cuff on them as soon as possible. We know that if you're not going to be able to load the tissue, at the very least, you are going to decrease how much atrophy transpires by just getting the cuff on. They don't even have to move. Okay. And you're starting to see this in the English Premier League a lot. And it's starting to seep mm. into the NFL where they're beginning to use cuffs bilaterally in season during travel as recovery, things like that. And the reason that is, is because it's going to decrease atrophy simply by sitting on a plane and pumping that thing up to 50% and letting it cycle through five minute clips. So I want to get the cuff on as soon as possible. Also, the, the market for blood flow restriction um tourniquets has has expanded drastically and so i will educate my patients to buy them at home so that they can awesome awesome Mm -hmm. and so they can use them at home while they're sitting around watching tv it's not the most comfortable thing in the world but it is such a significant difference Mm -hmm. um an athlete that that i texted you about dr bassett who had mm-hmm. a teller ORIF. He spent the first six weeks when he was non-weight bearing doing an hour and a half a day of BFR. When I saw him eight weeks post-op, his quad sizes were the same, which wow. is insane. And, and there's nothing else to pin that to other than the fact that he's a lunatic with his blood flow restriction.
2: I know. I'm curious. Can you say which one you generally recommend to people?
0: Yep. Um, I, I use uh, smart cuffs or H yeah. two cuffs. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, either one. Yeah. Um, what's I the don't one? have H two. Okay. Um, I don't have a preference. Uh, I will say I remember when I bought my first Delphi unit, which is hmm. like the Cadillac. It costs cost <laughs> more than my car. And now yeah. these things cost like 400
2: bucks. $400. Yeah. Yep. So we have smart tools in my clinic. Um, Ashley and some of our listeners probably know this. I bought it as Christmas presents for my nieces because they both tore their ACL. <laughs> <Sick>.
0: <laughs> um, awesome.
2: Um, because, and I became, I mean, I always liked it, but because they were, I trained into my fellowship in Vail. Um, they were using it and they were a little bit ahead of the curve that I, think when I first came to Denver, the therapists, a lot of them just hadn't had the training yet or their clinics hadn't invested in it. But over the last decade, like it's really like, it's pretty routinely available. Um, but I will say, I saw a huge, you know, difference with um, my niece who's been out from her ACL for about two years now. Just like her quad return and like her strength, like I mean, she just got beefy so quickly because she was so dedicated to it, you know. And um, you know, it's what Santa brought her, but it just—it's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but I, I do think it helps a lot.
1: Well, Yoni, that's so awesome to hear that you want to get it the cuff on as soon as possible because I think that's really beneficial. I try to start BFR for lower extremity as soon as possible. I know there's some there were some questions in our literature about do you wait for the incision to heal? You know, what do you do for skeletally immature patients? But we know it's it's not a hundred percent occlusion and that people do well with this earlier you get it on. And with with the upper extremity, you're more thinking it's the growth factor release and the systemic effects that is leading to the proximal gains. So it's not even like you have to work out the shoulder. You can just put it on and occlude. So um so would you say that you're starting it like say the patient comes in the day after surgery. Would you start it that early? Even if they're swelling, you'd still put it, it on?
0: I mean, you, gotta, you always got to say that you got to read the room. So mm-hmm. if I have a patient that comes in that is absolutely terrified, it's just not going to yeah. do well. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm, always, I'm always making sure that I get to visit two. right? So yeah, they true. come and visit one, they're terrified, they haven't met me yet. And I mm-hmm. put a tourniquet on their arm and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, just, just lay here. Like they're not coming back. <laughs> but, but patients that I know, um, patients that I think are, you know, are just a little bit more, um, a little bit more grit to them. Yes, uh, I'm definitely trying to do it. We know it doesn't increase edema. We know it mm-hmm. doesn't increase infection rates. We know it's not putting excessive strain on whatever it is you guys repaired. So mm-hmm. I, I just don't see the negative. I had this conversation with Dr. Galata, And mm-hmm. it, after the conversation, he was like, yeah, I guess, I guess that makes sense. Like, well, why are we not doing it? But i think <laughs> the same thing with, with ACLs, um, that you guys coming before they wake up, you do more to their knee than I'm going to do in the first three to four weeks, right? Like you slam it into flexion, you pull it all the way into extension, you make sure. So mm-hmm. w- what am I going to do that you guys haven't already done? Um, so, so yeah, I would be totally totally behind it and try to get it on them as, mu- as quick as possible.
2: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I think all of those things are true. And so our next paper did look at the BFR training program and military cadets um, that underwent uh, shoulder stabilization surgery. At, they started at six weeks. Um, Ashley touched on like a little bit of like, when do you start? And it seems like there's never a reason to like, wait till six weeks. Is there anything that you can think of that would make you halt?
0: There, there's really not. And, and what's nice is like once physicians kind of get behind it, read through some of the literature, at least enough to get comfortable with it, I'm not getting questions from docs around it other than, can you please use BFR? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so no, uh, I'm not concerned. I, I mean, my concerns would be swelling. If I didn't read the literature, that's not a concern. Uh, infection rates. Um, and then any, any type of adverse pressure I would put on the repair, and that's just not there. I, I don't know what else mm-hmm. to worry about
1: yeah so about that um so you're saying you don't worry about all those things but are there any contraindications that would make you not use bfr in someone so not any of those things that have been disproven in the literature but certain patient factors besides them being afraid of you that you that would make you not put on the bfr cup
0: yeah i I mean i'd be i'd be worried if they had some clotting issues Mm -hmm. um I'd be worried. I'm always leery about first uh, trimester of pregnancy, although it doesn't show up in the literature as an issue. Um, I just want to yeah. be careful with that population. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of explain them and get their buy-in, um, and and that's really that's really it. Um, yeah. I can't think of anything else that would that would really make me nervous. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, I agree. Like, I don't really have anything like the. The only time I have not to use it is with the bear. So the bear ACL, just Mm -hmm. the folks um, that are, you know, basically Mioc, the company that put that out, their lead scientist has asked that we don't um, just as they're still like in their, you know, first decade of patient data. And they're just trying to limit the factors. I think of like, if we have any issues, we want to be able to figure out what they are. So I'm just respectful of that request. But I think most of us that do the bear procedure are also just like, I'm sure at some point that'll get lifted and because we can't really physiologically sort of come up with a reason why it's not okay. Um, But mm-hmm. I'm just respectful of, you know, their um scientific sort of protocols for rehab are a little bit, I don't know if um, you know, you've taken care of a bear ACL yet, but like, yep. you know, they're, it, it's just, just a different. Yeah. yeah. So just stick with it. I always sort of just, I don't think everybody does. Some surgeons sort of make their own, but I think, I'm just sticking with what they ask for now.
0: (laughs) I I mean, I think that makes total sense. It's like whenever I have a student um, or a new PT, I I just try to impart the age-old wisdom of, like, don't be a dumbass. You know, like, if if your patient is breaking out into sweats and they're dreading this tourniquet, okay, we rehabbed a lot of shoulders before BFR. And they did just fine. I would say the same thing for dry needling. Yeah. Not
2: for Mm -hmm. everyone so true i know i've had some people who are like so i have physical therapists in my office um just mu- like monday wednesday friday in the morning and the primary thing is like just exercise testing and we do a bunch of like our post-operative exercise testing um and we have like co-treat visits but we do do dry needling and cupping for those kind of people who are like there for their follow-up but we're noticing they need a little benefit and there's just sometimes you know you can just tell it's like the sweats start to come and we're like yep. you don't have to do this you know yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, just read the room. Just read the room.
1: Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The Sports Docs. We hope you enjoyed the first part of our discussion as much as we did. On the next episode, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Yoni Rosenblatt and shift our focus to the specific rehab of different stabilization surgeries, then wrap up with a discussion on return to play. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and YouTube to stay up-to-date on all things sports medicine. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review or comment.